How do the ministries of the Holy Spirit to believers differ between the two Testaments? A second question is how are the ministries of the Holy Spirit to believers similar in the Old Testament and New Testament? Now, there's not a lot of evidence on this in Scripture, but I think there's enough to come up with an intelligent answer. Now, before we go to this, have we talked about this before? Have we talked about the difference between New Testament indwelling and what was done in the Old Testament? No? I think we have. Okay. Well, we're going to go through this quickly. I think we've probably said the basics, and there's not a whole lot more to say. Okay, let's just look at the passages that I see as evidence for this issue. In Genesis chapter 1, Pharaoh says, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? Pharaoh is talking about Joseph. And he's referring to the fact that Joseph had a lot of wisdom. Can you read that? 41. Yeah, Genesis 41. I'm sorry. Okay. Um... God tells Moses to take Joshua and he calls him a man in whom is the Spirit and lay your hand on him. We're told in 1 Samuel that Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. And immediately after that, we're told that the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Um, we are told in an earlier passage in 1 Samuel that this is before, I believe, or, or right around when Saul became king. It says, as Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart and all these things came upon him. Now, I believe that that is a statement of the regeneration of Saul, of his being born again. Um, some might argue with that. We know from the book of Judges that repeatedly there are statements that say the Spirit of the Lord came upon a judge. And in each one of those cases, that coming upon of the Spirit provides the judge with particular powers to do his ministry. Now here's a very important passage, and this one is, is worth putting in your mental store of scriptural verses, John 7:39, But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, for Jesus was not yet glorified. Okay, that's a very, very important verse. It seems to be stating, and I believe that is what it states, that the indwelling kind of ministry, the special ministry that we have, did not begin until after the cross. Bob? Uh, there's, th that statement has the implication of saying that it couldn't occur until Christ been glorified. Is there anything else in Scripture that eliminates on that? Well, I mean, that's some sort of strange. Um, I don't understand your question. Well, it seems to be saying that the Spirit would not be able to glorify. Okay, yes. After Christ was glorified. Well, I think, I think it's right that the Spirit wasn't able in the same sense that Jesus was not able to do many miracles in his hometown. It's because he, Jesus was not authorized by the Father to do it. And I think that this is saying 
that the Holy Spirit was not authorized by the Son to do it. You know, we've got the thing where the Father sends the Son and the Son sends the Spirit, and I think that's what it's about. I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think it's a fundamental inability. I think it's a programmatic change that the members of the Trinity agreed upon, basically. Okay. Now, the only, the only thing that I want to say here, and you should note it, is that Pharaoh says that the Spirit is in Joseph, and the Lord says that the Spirit is in Joshua. If those two verses weren't there, this would be really easy. But I think that they're figures of speech referring to the ministry of the Spirit to him and not to the technical indwelling that we have. All right? Um, generally, the Old Testament ministry of the Spirit involves empowerment for a particular task. None of those verses that we looked at, except the one where it said that God gave... Saul a new heart, none of those verses had to do with getting saved or regeneration. Okay? So it doesn't seem that that's what those things are talking about. I think it's clear from the case of Samson, of, let's see, of Samson and of Saul that the, I call it the on-dwelling for lack of another word. I just made that up. Okay? That the on-dwelling was temporary. The spirit was taken from Samson when his hair was cut. Right? The spirit was taken from Saul when David was anointed as king in his place. So whatever that kind of ministry of the spirit was to those men, it was temporary. It wasn't permanent. That in itself is a contrast with New Testament indwelling, which is what? It's permanent, isn't it? What's so important about it being permanent? Why... Okay, exactly. Well, yeah, what does the New Testament call the indwelling Holy Spirit? A seal. Okay, he's a seal. He's a guarantee of our future redemption. Eric. Do you think the Holy Spirit works at all today in non believers? Yeah, I would say that the Holy Spirit convicts and illuminates. And I think last week we had the discussion of conviction versus um, versus uh, effectual calling. Remember I said last week that I think that passage in John 16 where it says the Spirit will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, that's talking about something he does for everybody. But that's not the same as bringing them to salvation. But as far as the Spirit working in anybody from inside, I don't see any evidence of that except for believers. So David, you say convict and Well, I think the I I think the conviction that John 16 talks about is universal. I think it's basically the same conviction as in Romans chapter one, where people look at the world and they know that there's a God, but not everybody receives the effectual calling and illumination that leads to faith, inevitably, at least from a Calvinistic perspective. Does that make sense? Pat? I start to say this, this is similar to the New Testament as you've spoken of being filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, it, 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 is, it is in a way. It's similar in that it's temporary and in that it produces 
capabilities that the person does not have in himself. But there are some differences. Whatever was going on in the Old Testament, it was different than the New Testament in dwelling. It may be best to call that ministry on dwelling. It's not the same as New Testament indwelling. I think I've said that about three times. Okay. Thus we conclude. In the Old Testament, there was no permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament on-dwelling provide, provided empowerment for a specific task. That's very obvious in the case of, of the judges, in the case of Saul, in the case of David. The Old Testament on-dwelling was temporary, not permanent. Yet, Old Testament believers were secure, just like we are, because of God's promise. It all goes back to Genesis 15:6, doesn't it? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And God never yanks that credit from his book. And ultimately, because of Christ's work. Remember that passage in Romans 3.23? It essentially says that Old Testament believers were saved on credit in anticipation of Christ going to the cross. So, for that reason, Old Testament believers were secure and we should not conclude that because they didn't have the permanent indwelling, they weren't secure. Okay, Old Testament believers were regenerate like New Testament believers because they were spiritually dead until they were saved and then they became spiritually alive. Now, this passage in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 31, speak, it has in it a call to spiritual life. And I simply put it up there because the concept of being spiritually alive is present in the Old Testament, although it's not emphasized at all like it is in the New Testament. Does, are you all comfortable with this? I don't think there's anything particularly difficult here, and I think this is kind of review. All right, then I'm going to move on to a controversial topic, the blasphemy or the sin against the Holy Spirit. Okay, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12, if you will. Matthew chapter 12. Now, the context of Matthew chapter 12 is that Jesus has performed a healing on the Sabbath. You see that in 12, 9 through 14. And the Pharisees don't like it. And then... Starting in verse 22, someone is brought to him who is demon-possessed, blind, and mute, and he heals him so that he both speaks and sees, and presumably the demonic manifestations go away. Now in verse 23, all the multitudes are amazed, and they said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Now, the Lord Jesus responds to this accusation in a number of ways. He goes through the discussion of the uh, kingdom divided against itself and the plundering of the strong man's house. In verse 30, he says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. And then he pronounces these words, which have given a lot of believers nightmares. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, 
but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Okay? It's definitely a difficult passage. Now, let me give you the parallel from Mark, which even seems to make it more difficult. Mark chapter 3, verses 28 to 29. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, a few of your Bibles have the reading, but is subject to eternal condemnation. Anybody's Bible have that? That's in the New King James, I think. Okay? That's a minority reading. Most of the manuscripts don't have that reading. And in a few minutes, you'll see why that may or may not be significant. Now, just at face value, what the Lord Jesus has said here seems to indicate that there are unforgivable sins. It seems to indicate that one can make himself unsavable. And it seems to imply that a saved person can damn himself, doesn't it? Seems to say that. Now, if that's what he's saying, it goes against a whole lot of other teaching in Scripture, doesn't it? That's one of the reasons why this passage is so difficult. It doesn't seem to square with the rest of Scripture. The other reason why the passage is difficult is because we're afraid we're going to commit this sin and damn ourselves. Okay, I've actually heard people who were involved in cults who were told to commit the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit so that they could not later go to Christ for forgiveness. Okay? Now we're going to discuss this and I think we can make sense of it and I don't think that any of these things are really what Jesus is saying. And you'll see why in a few minutes. And then the question is whether I convince you or not. Okay. We need to consider the nature of the sin. Now looking at the context, the nature of the sin is attributing the miracles that Christ performed during his earthly ministry to the work of Satan. Okay? His miracles were performed by the power of the Holy Spirit, but blaspheming the Holy Spirit is saying, nah, -uh, that's not the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the work of Satan. That's the nature of the sin. Can you all see that? Okay. Second point there seems to be some distinction between the person of Christ and the person of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, if you blaspheme the Son, it will be forgiven you, but if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven you. Now that's a little odd because the Son and the Holy Spirit are co-equal, co-eternal, co-in-every-sense members of the Trinity. Why would it make sense for a sin against one member of the Trinity to lead to eternal condemnation when the same sin against another mem member of the Trinity doesn't lead to it. That's a little odd, isn't it? Okay, the next thing to note is the time frame. Look at what Jesus says 
at the end of verse 32 in Matthew 12. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. Now, we've talked a little bit about Matthew 24. Remember we talked about the disciples saying, when will we know that you're coming and what will be the signs of the end of the age? And we saw that Jewish eschatology divides history into two parts, and they are what? What's the first one? What's the second one? It's real easy. What are the Jews waiting for? Messiah. Right. The first age is waiting for Messiah, and the second age is when Messiah is here. Okay? Now, if you are a premillennialist, does either of those ages fall within eternity? No. Not really. Okay? The age of Messiah is the millennial kingdom. Okay? It's the time when the covenant promises will be fulfilled. That will give way to eternity, and Messiah will still be present, but that's not the eternity is not the age to come. If you look at this from a Jewish perspective, Jesus is not talking about something that goes off into infinity in future time. He's talking about something that has consequences in the present time of waiting for Messiah and in Messiah's future kingdom. See where I'm going? Okay, let's keep going. All right. The next thing to take into account is other scriptural teaching. Is it not clear from other passages in scripture that any and every sin can be covered by the blood of Christ if we only come to him seeking forgiveness? Isn't that true? Now, John 3.16 doesn't say whoever believes in him will be saved if he hasn't already committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. There are no such limiting clauses. So any solution of this, unless we're really going to bend Scripture, has got to take account of the fact that the sin against the Holy Spirit can't be a sin that the blood of Jesus cannot cover in the sense of earning eternal forgiveness. Are you with me? Now, what I'm going to suggest is that there are two kinds of forgiveness. And some of you have heard me talk about this before, and some of you haven't. And I hope I can make sense of it for you. Now, the last thing that we need to take into account is the fact that many, many people who committed this sin were later saved, and it's recorded in Scripture. Okay? What's the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? It's saying that Jesus' miracles aren't the miracles of God. They're done by the power of Satan. Don't you think Paul committed that sin? He had to. What about the 3,000 who were saved in Acts chapter 2? Those are the ones who are at the cross saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And then what happens? They get saved. Okay, Acts chapter 6, verse 8 says that a time, sometime after the cross, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And when they became obedient to the faith, they switched from being the enemies of Christ to being followers of Christ. Okay? I expect to see Paul in heaven. Don't you? Okay, you start thinking about this, and there's a whole lot of evidence that is suggesting that this can't be a sin that renders a person 
damned or that renders him or her unsavable. So then the question is, what is it? Yes. Okay. Well, I think it amounts to the same thing, really. I mean, you either recognize that Jesus is the agent of God or he is the agent of Satan. Those are the only two choices on the table. And those who refuse to recognize him as the agent of God were attributing his miracles to the power of Satan. That's all they could do. It's really an either-or. And Jesus himself says that, actually, in Matthew 12... Uh, 30, he says, he who's not with, who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. It, it's really a watershed thing. You're on one side of the fence or you're on the other. And, and the response of the Pharisees to the question of the people, could this be the son of David, recognizes that there are only two choices. When they say, is this the Messiah? And they're really excited because they're seeing messianic miracles. The Pharisees turn around and say, no, it ain't the Messiah, it's the agent of Satan. Those are the only two possibilities. So when I'm, you know, I, I don't have a record of somebody saying, you know, I have committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and then saying I'm saved later. But I think it's virtually indisputable that Paul committed this sin because he was a Pharisee and he agreed with the Pharisees evaluation of who Christ was and he later came to faith. And I think the same has to be true of the 3,000 who rejected him and called for his crucifixion, you know, and who were saved on the day of Pentecost. And, and ultimately I think the same has to be said of the priests who wouldn't believe in him while he was here, but who came to faith sometime after Christ rose in, in Acts chapter 6. You see, you see the argument now? It, it really is an either-or thing. Okay? Now, my conclusion, my suggestion, is that the sin against the Holy Spirit is attributing Christ's miracles done in the power of the Holy Spirit to Satan. The sin is serious, and it has consequences that will not be removed either now or during the Messianic Kingdom. That's why he says... The sin, what are the words? He says, it will not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. The, the word forgive basically means to remove the consequences of the thing that is being forgiven. Now, that's hard to read, um, but the consequences do not include eternal damnation the penalty was paid in A.D. 70. Now, let me explain all that to you, okay? Think about the consequences of sin. Some consequences of sin are eternal. Any sin that I, as an unbeliever, commit has an eternal consequence, which is what? Hell, the lake of fire, eternal damnation. Now, if I, as a believer, commit sin, it has consequences. None of those consequences will be eternal, but it will have consequences. 
If I cheat against my wife, what are some of the consequences likely to be? I may get shot. Okay? It depends on who I cheat with. Okay? I will certainly have a sense of guilt. If I get caught, what will happen to me? I'll get thrown out of the ministry. Yeah. She'll make my life miserable. A whole lot of people will make my life miserable, and rightly so. If I get on my knees and I repent of that sin and I ask God to forgive me and restore me to fellowship, will he? Will those other consequences go away? Not necessarily. In fact, not even likely. David, are you saying that temporal consequences then extend into the millennial kingdom? Yes, I am. That's right. And I'll explain that in a moment. Okay? So what I'm suggesting is that as a general rule, when we think about the consequences of sin, we need to make two categories. Temporal consequences, consequences which unfold during time, and eternal consequences, consequences which unfold in eternity. Okay? And I am saying that when Jesus says it will not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come, he's saying that there are very serious consequences for this sin, but because of all these other things that we looked at, those consequences cannot be the eternal consequence of damnation. They have to be something else. Okay? Now turn with me to Acts chapter 2, and there I will defend the idea that the consequence was the destruction of Jerusalem. Now the first thing that I want to say on this issue is that nobody can commit the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit today. You can't do it because you're not an eyewitness of the miracles of Christ. Okay? Whatever you do with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, it doesn't apply today, even if you think it's eternal damnation because Christ is not here doing miracles and you're not observing them. And you can't attribute them to the to the work of Satan. Bob? You could read the scripture and say it was the work of Satan. Well, okay. You, you could argue that way. All right? But I think that the sin was observing the miracles and then attributing them to the Holy Spirit. You, you might make that kind of an argument. But... You know, is a person really qualified to make a judgment without being an eyewitness? It's kind of doubtful. But okay, well, you you could I guess you could stupidly do it, but I I don't think it would fall into the category of what Christ is talking about. But that's an interesting point, Bob. Okay, Acts chapter two is the account of Pentecost. Now take a look at verse twenty-two. Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him. Catch that? Which God did through him. That's speaking of the work of the Holy Spirit. In your midst, as you yourselves also know, every one of these people knew about those miracles, and they were witnesses. Him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. He said, you are the ones who did it. And you saw the miracles 
and you rejected them, and you killed the Son of God. Okay? Now, Peter will go through his defense of who Jesus was. He's going to use scripture. He's going to use the fact of the resurrection. And he's going to come to a conclusion in verse 36. He says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Okay? Now, what he is saying is this. There were two charges against Jesus. We've gone over this before, I think. The charges were sedition and blasphemy. He was charged with sedition because he said he was the Messiah, the rightful king of Israel, which would have been insurrection against Rome. And he was charged with blasphemy because he said he was the divine son of God. Both of the accusations were true. Guilty, Jesus was guilty on both counts, but neither count on which he was guilty was a crime because he really was the Messiah. He really was the Son of God. And Peter's argument is, I've just proved to you that that is true. When he says that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, he's saying it was true all along. Now, verse 37 says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Now, I believe that that is the description of their conversion. At that moment, they are convicted by the facts and by the Holy Spirit, and they realize that they were wrong, and they realize that Jesus was who he said he was, and they say, men and brethren, what should we do? Now, if you're from the Church of Christ, you love the next verse, and yet I'm going to show you why the Church of Christ misuses this verse. And Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises to you and your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Now look at verse 40. He doesn't say, be saved from eternal hell, does he? What does he say? Be saved from this generation. Now, this is what Peter is saying. If you remember in the Gospel of John in chapter 9, when the blind man is healed, there's a statement that the Jewish leaders had said that anybody who confessed that Jesus was the Christ would be kicked out of the synagogue. Remember that? Okay? To be baptized in the name of Christ was the public confession that would lead to being kicked out of the synagogue. Okay? By the way, that same idea of confession is what's in the book of Hebrews when the writer of the Hebrews says, hold fast your confession. Right? Okay. When Peter says, be saved from this generation, when he says, be baptized, he's not saying, get baptized in order to be saved, he's saying, because you have believed that Jesus is who he said he was, because in believing you have already become believers, make a public statement that you are reversing your previous verdict on Christ when you said crucify him, and do that by being baptized. You guys stood up at the foot of the cross and said crucify him, crucify him, crucify him and you just found out 
that what you did was absolutely wrong, that you condemned an innocent man. When he says, be saved from this perverse generation, he's saying, you put yourselves under the penalty that's going to come on this nation because it rejected Christ. If you want to be freed from that penalty, stand up in public, get baptized, reverse publicly the verdict that you made earlier, and you will be freed from that penalty. Okay? Now, we know from history that what in fact happened was that as A.D. 70 approached, when the Roman army came and put Jerusalem under siege, the Christians all left. They all left because they understood the prophecies that Christ had made in Luke chapter 21, where he said the days are coming when they will build up an embankment upon you and they will capture the city and destroy the city. And the Christians knew that. They did not experience the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, what I'm arguing is that the penalty for the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the thing for which forgiveness will not be given, either in this age or in the age to come, was the destruction of Jerusalem, and that event had consequences that persist all through this age and even into the future Messianic kingdom. Because if the nation hadn't committed that sin, Christ would have set up his kingdom much earlier and history would have been very different. And it's on the basis of that explanation that we can reconcile the teaching of other parts of Scripture which say that there's no sin that the blood of Christ can't cover with the statement that Christ makes when he describes the penalty for the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Did you follow? Yes, no? Belen, you're giving me dirty looks. I'm not too sure, but I missed the beginning. Now, in, in Mark um, 3.29, mm-hmm. it does talk about the eternal judgment there regarding the things that okay. are going to say this age or the next age. All right. Well, that's, that's why I pointed that out to you. Let's go back a slide. Okay? Okay. The text does not say is subject to eternal condemnation in most Greek manuscripts. There are only a couple that say that. The vast majority of them say he is guilty of an eternal sin. Okay? Now, to be guilty of an eternal sin is not the same as being subject to eternal condemnation. Eternal condemnation, in every other place where I know the phrase is used, it means going to the lake of fire. But I think that this is essentially equivalent to this statement. It will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. It's an eternal sin in the sense that it has consequences that will not be erased, but those consequences are not the consequence of eternal damnation. Does that make sense? You know, another way to look at it is you can actually argue that every sin has eternal consequences in one sense. Okay? Every time I sin, what do I do? I lose an opportunity to gain reward. I minimize the eternal reward that I'm going to receive from Christ that I will enjoy forever. Okay? So, you know, what I am trying to do here is come up with an explanation for the nature of this sin that allows us to maintain a consistent understanding of the saving work of Christ with all the rest of the statements that are made in Scripture. Okay? 
if we argue that this is the one sin that a person can commit that renders him or her unsavable or that pops him out of the Father's hand and into the fire, boy, we're in trouble. You see what's at stake? And I do think that there's enough evidence to piece this together and I do think it's plausible. Jim? You're thinking. Yeah, I don't know what I'm thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Cheryl? I'm just curious what other people teach. Okay. I see your reasoning, but sure. what else is there? All right. I can tell, well, I, let, me tell you, let me tell you a little bit about views on this. The view that I'm teaching you is not uniquely my own. Okay. Now, some of the defenses that I've given, like this idea that you know other people committed it and they got saved, I've never seen that in print anywhere. Um, I'll forget that. Okay. Um, but this is not an uncommon view among premillennialists. Okay. Some people will argue that the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the same sin of which the writer of Hebrews speaks in Hebrews chapter 6 when he says there, okay, it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Okay? Many people would link the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit up with this passage in Hebrews chapter 6 and say that this is the one sin that can either take a person who is saved and send him to hell or take a person who is not saved and render him unsavable from that point forward. All right. you're right I think you're right if 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 this was something if, if, if this was the one manhole in the middle of the narrow road to heaven and you really could fall in it I think God would make it very clear now I can explain to you very simply what's going on in Hebrews chapter 6 and it's not eternal damnation okay it's really very simple. If you look at the description in verses 4 and 5 of the person who's there, it's a true believer. Okay? Everything that's there is true of a believer and is not true of an unbeliever. In particular, the phrase, have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. That word tasted is the same word that's used in chapter 2 where it talks about Christ tasting death for everybody. Now, some people say, well, it's just tasting. It's like walking up to a giant ice cube and licking it. You know, well, Jesus didn't lick death in that sense. He licked it, right? He licked it in the Texan sense, not in the tongue sense. Okay? Um, you know, I've tasted the good word of God, the powers of the age to come, 
who were, who were once enlightened. Okay? This is a description of a real believer. Now, that doesn't solve the problem, but it does eliminate the possibility that this is somebody who gets really close to getting saved but never crosses the line and then commits a sin that makes it impossible for him to later cross the line. It's not about a person who almost gets saved and then renders himself unsavable. The rest of the solution is in the rest of the passage, verses 7 and 8. The earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed whose end it is to be burned. How many of you grew up on a farm? What's it mean when you burn a field? And then what do you do? You plant it again, right? To introduce the concept of burning as in eternal damnation in the lake of fire is to do horrible violence to this text. You burn a field to get rid of the impurities, the bad seeds, the weeds, all the things that are preventing it from being fruitful. And then once you've done that, you plant it again. Okay? This isn't talking about casting somebody into hell. It's talking about chastising them to cleanse the person of the kind of sins that are rendering him or her unfruitful so that they can continue to, being fruit, to be fruitful. Right? The most valuable thing a farmer has is land. If he's got a piece of land that doesn't grow good crops, he doesn't throw it away. You can't even throw land away. And you can't burn land up. You just burn the surface and then you use it again. Okay? In context, what this is talking about is a believer who retreats and hides the fact that he's a Christian and refuses to join with the rest of the assembly and refuses to stand tall for Christ and refuses to say, yes, I was baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Yes, I'm a follower of him. And instead runs and hides and pretends to be a Jew again and goes back into the old sacrificial system and starts offering lambs on the altar and all that. Such a person doesn't lose his salvation, but he becomes entirely useless to God. And the message of the book of Hebrews is that if a believer does that, God will chastise that person in order to bring that person back to fruitfulness. Now, sometimes the chastisement is just, I'm going to take this person off the earth before he does any more damage. But he ends up in heaven just like the believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Belen? Um, well, apostasy, does it really fall into these other verses in Matthew and Mark? Because I don't see... Show me, um, just kind of enlighten me where it says that the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is talking against uh, the miracles of God. Saying but it's that right, it's right, okay, it's right it there in the... No, 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 it's right there. It's right there in uh, Matthew chapter 12. Okay. Jesus, he does not do miracles by, by, yeah, yeah, by, yeah. no, I'm sorry. This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the prince of the demons. Beelzebub is Satan. Well, it's, but it's a miracle. And, and go all through the Gospels over and over again. What are the Pharisees going to say? They're going to say that Jesus does this by the power of Satan. This isn't the only case. Okay, There are other healings where they say the same thing. 
And again, there really are only two choices. You know, people are observing undeniable supernatural miracles. The question is, are they satanic miracles or are they divine miracles? Okay? Um, so, Cheryl, back to your question. Okay? Most people would argue one of three ways. They would argue as I have. Okay? Or they would say that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a special sin that can be committed by unbelievers which renders them never savable in the future. Some would go so far as to say it is that plus a sin that can be committed by believers which would render them damned once again and then unsavable. Those are the basic views. Okay? It's either something that's not eternal, which is what I've, what I've argued, or it's something that an unbeliever can do that renders him unsavable, or it's something that a believer could do that will actually take away his salvation and render him unsavable after that. Okay? And, and on a simple theological basis, just on the basis of everything else we know about the work of Christ, those latter two ideas are just untenable. And you're really talking out of both sides of the, your mouth if you say Christ will save anybody who believes, but if he commits the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, he can't be saved. You, you just can't have both. Okay? Yeah. All right. Let's take our break. Uh, 